I'd like to welcome all those of you who are gathered with us this morning to worship our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Welcome. I invite you to turn in God's Word to 1 Kings chapter 3. 1 Kings chapter 3, we're continuing to look at the successor to King David's throne in Israel, his son Solomon. 1 Kings chapter 3, we'll be reading the, the whole chapter and reflecting on its message. 1 Kings 3.1, let's hear God's word together. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept him, you have kept for him this great and steadfast love that you have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I am a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people, whom you have chosen, a great nation, too many to be numbered, or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, Because you have asked this, and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before, uh, none has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all of his servants. Then two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. The one said, Oh, my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I've, I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. Then on the third day I, I, after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth, and we were alone. There was no one else with us in the house. Only we two were in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. And she rose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your servant slept and laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. When I rose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, he was not, it was not the child that I had born. But the other woman said, no, the living child is mine and the dead child is yours. The first said, no, the dead child is yours and the living child is mine. Thus they spoke before the king. And the king said, the one says... This is my son that is alive, and your son is dead. And the other says, No, but your son is dead, and my son is the living one. The king said, Bring me a sword. So a sword was brought before the king, and the king said, Divide the living child in two, and give half to the one and half to the other. And the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son, O oh my lord, give her, give her the living child, and by no means put him to death. 
But the other said, He shall be neither mine nor yours, divide him. And the king answered and said, Give the living child to the first woman, and by no means put him to death. She is his mother. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we confess that you do all things well. You are wise in all of your dealings with us. Your word is wise and utterly reliable. But we confess, Lord, that so often we fall short of your perfect wisdom. We speak as we ought not to speak. We are led by our emotions. We give way to unrighteous anger. We lack the wisdom, Lord, to be faithful to you and the responsibilities that you've given to us. And so this, moment, this morning we ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you would give us wisdom, Lord, to be faithful to you. Wisdom to turn from evil and love what is good. Father, your word teaches that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so we ask this morning that you would teach us to revere you, to stand in awe of you, that our lives might be beautiful and in harmony with your will. We pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom as parents to know how to form our children such that when they become adults, they bring glory and honor to you and blessing to others. We pray for your wisdom in our marriages. We pray for your wisdom, Lord, in our work, that we might glorify you in every sphere of life. Lord, bless the proclamation of your word this morning. Use it to accomplish your good purposes in our midst. And through your word, Lord, impart wisdom to us, we ask. Amen. In the first two chapters of First Kings, uh, the book of First Kings, we've seen how Solomon is established as king over Israel in place of his father David. Uh, we've seen how his rivals were routed, one of them even put to death, Adonijah. Uh, his hold on the throne of Israel is now secure. But it's one thing to be king and to be established as the ruler of a nation. It's another to have the esteem of the people, to have the confidence of the people. And so while the first two chapters describe how he secures the throne, this chapter describes how the Lord exalts Solomon in the eyes of Israel. How they come to see him not just as king, but a king who is trustworthy, king who inspires confidence because of his supreme wisdom. This chapter enables us to ask and answer two significant questions. Uh, life is short, and we want to make sure we don't waste it. We want to aim at the very best things in life. And so one of the most essential questions we can ask is, what should I be living for? What are the right and biblical priorities that God calls me to? What should I be aiming at? And this chapter answers that question by saying we should seek first the kingdom. Explain what that means, but we should seek first the kingdom. Second question it asks and answers is uh, what are you trusting in? What's your confidence as you face life? What should you trust in? And this chapter answers that question as well and says trust in the king. Seek the kingdom, trust in the king. All right, so... This story, this account uh, of Solomon's obtaining wisdom, begins on what is perhaps an ominous note. How did you read that? How did you respond to that detail about Solomon making an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, marrying a princess from Egypt? If you know the biblical story, you know that the Egyptians are sort of Israel's arch uh, nemesis. Uh, they, they were the ones who held God's people in captivity. And God had to liberate them. What is this business then of the king of Israel, Solomon, making an alliance with Pharaoh? I don't think that that was necessarily sinful. If you look at Deuteronomy 7, which 
describes what is not permitted in marriage. It's clear God's people couldn't marry with the Canaanites. It's clear they couldn't engage in idolatrous practices, but it's not obvious that this marriage would have done that. Um, It is perhaps a foreshadowing of bad things to come in Solomon's life. We're going to see later how foreign women turned his heart from the Lord uh, to follow other gods, but it's not clear that that's happening yet. At most, this is um, an ominous premonition of what is to come. I think this detail is actually more positive. Uh, Egypt was a big deal as a political power, as a kingdom. The fact that Egypt is seeking an alliance with Israel says something about the prominence of Israel on the world stage. Israel is a prominent and significant kingdom. Uh, As a rule, pharaohs didn't like to marry off their daughters to other kings, even though they're very powerful. The fact that he's willing to marry off his daughter to Solomon says something about the power that Israel has become and the glory of Solomon's throne. And then we're told about the high places. God wanted his people to worship him at a centralized sanctuary, but because the temple hadn't been built, the people were offering sacrifices at various high places. Uh, This is not ideal. should be rectified when the temple is built, Uh, but it seems to be perhaps permissible during this period when Solomon is building the temple. Now, Solomon offers significant sacrifices on one occasion at Gibeon. When he lies down to sleep, the Lord reveals himself to his king in a dream. The Lord is generous, and he says to Solomon, what do you want? Ask what I shall give you. It's a blank check, if you like. Uh, Ask of me anything, and I will give it to you. And this is, of course, a tremendous gift, a tremendous opportunity, but it's also a test, isn't it? Solomon's response to the Lord's offer is going to reveal what is in Solomon's heart, what his deepest loves and loyalties are. How you answer that question is very revealing. If that question were posed to you right now, ask of me anything and I'll give it to you, what's your first instinct? Which way does your heart lean? Don't think about the answer that you would have given after you realized that the first instinct was wrong. What's the first instinct that's usually a more reliable guide to where your heart is? So this offer is a test. Where do Solomon's loyalties lie? What can I give you? Solomon begins in his response to the Lord by highlighting his inadequacy and the magnitude of the task that God has given to him. He acknowledges that his throne is from the Lord. It's because the Lord has been faithful to his promise to his dad David that he has the throne. Uh, He's engaged, as we saw in the first two chapters, in some political machinations and maneuverings to get the throne, but ultimately it's not his sagacity or wisdom that gets him the throne. He's on the throne because the Lord is faithful to the promise he made to David. Solomon acknowledges that he's there because God wants him to be. He's got big shoes to, uh, to fill. He says, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father. David uh, was a powerful, illustrious king over God's people. Solomon is taking his place, and so there's a weight to that. He's standing on the throne of his father, David, who's no ordinary king either, but the one that's been chosen by God, the one with whom God has established a covenant, a unique relationship. And then Solomon acknowledges his inadequacies for the task, He describes himself as a little child, meaning he's not experienced in matters of governing the state, matters of policy, matters of ruling justly. Uh, He says he doesn't know how to go in or come out, indicating that he lacks the requisite skill to rule justly and wisely and well over God's people. 
He feels the magnitude of his calling to be a shepherd or a king to God's people. He feels his inadequacy. And then the magnitude of his calling is compounded by the greatness of Israel. Verse 8. Your servant is in the midst of a people whom you have chosen. Solomon is not a king over just any ordinary nation. He's king over Israel. These are the people that God has chosen to be his treasured possession. They are his people. They are a great nation. They are too numerous to be counted. That language in verse 8 suggests a fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. If you go back to Genesis, when God establishes a relationship with Abraham, who's the patriarch of Israel, he says, I'm going to give you a nation that's so great that you won't be able to count them. As, uh, as numerous as the grains of sand on the seashore. And we see a fulfillment of that. Israel has indeed become numerous and great in fulfillment of God's promise. So Solomon looks at that, and he trembles at the task before him. You probably know that experience as well. You look at the massive responsibilities God has given you, wife, husband, father, employer, employee, whatever it is, and then you look at yourself and you see, man, I'm, I don't think I have what it takes for this. This is too big for me. I lack the strength, the wisdom, the character to fulfill my God-given calling. There are two common but unbiblical responses to that sense of inadequacy. First response is despair, give up. Lord, I can't do that. The call is too big. It's too great. There's no way I'll ever do it. So maybe we stumble along half-heartedly, never really expecting to be effective because we're just not cut out for what God has called us to do. Defeatism, giving up. Second response is uh, arrogant self-confidence. I got this. Uh, I dislike that expression, but it's ubiquitous, isn't it? It's uh, used widely. I got this. You got this. Uh, frequently, it's got us, right, whatever the circumstances are. Um, but this arrogant self-confidence that disregards your limitations, disregards the magnitude of the problem and responsibility in front of you, and you're going to be confident in yourself. And you go forward not appreciating the seriousness of what happens and you fall on your face. Also unbiblical. But there's a better way. There's a third way. There's Solomon's way, which is not to deny that you're inadequate, that you're limited, and you're not sufficient for the great call of God that he has put on your life. You acknowledge your limitations but then you acknowledge that the Lord is sufficient to provide everything you need to rise to the occasion. The wisdom and strength that you lack but need to be a faithful father, wife, employee, whatever, uh, that wisdom and strength can be found in the Lord. Because He is our provider, our strength, our rock, our source of wisdom, we can face the challenges of life confidently and boldly. Not arrogantly because we have anything to offer, but because God is on our side he richly provides for his people, and that should give us a strength and a courage. That's what Solomon does. He says, Lord, I'm inadequate. First step in his prayer. This is a big deal what you've called me to do, and I know I'm inadequate. But Lord, now here's his request in verse 9. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind. Literally in the Hebrew, it's a hearing heart. A hearing heart. As a rule, we think of the mind as being the organ of thought. The Hebrews often... Um, would think with their hearts. The, the heart, which is the center of the person, was the place for thinking and willing. And the bowels, the liver, was the place of the emotions. We think of the heart as the place of the emotions. The liver uh, was the place of the emotions. But what Solomon is asking for is wisdom, good judgment, the ability to distinguish between what is right and wrong, what is good and evil, 
to see through moral dilemmas. In other words, his request for wisdom is not wisdom for its own sake. He wants wisdom so he can rule justly and effectively, punishing the wicked, justifying the innocent. To rule well, kings need wisdom. Wisdom in Scripture is a practical thing. It means skill to live well, to live beautifully. Wisdom has to do with knowing when to speak and when not to, knowing what to say and when, being persuasive, how to raise children, uh, raising them up in the fear of the Lord. It has to do with knowing how to use money effectively, working hard, uh, being able to look at a moral dilemma and think your way through to the right course of action. Wisdom is about living skillfully, beautifully, and of course, to govern, to rule justly, kings need wisdom, hence Solomon's request. Solomon passes the test. Verse 10, it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. God delights in bestowing wisdom and delights when his people come to him seeking wisdom, James 1.5. He gives generously without finding fault. If you know yourself at all, if you know your duties in life, you know that you need wisdom and you need strength, and praise God, he's the kind of God who delights to give wisdom to those who ask. So God is delighted by Solomon's request. And he commends him and says, because you've asked this, and not asked for yourself, in other words, this is not a selfish request. You weren't thinking about yourself, Solomon, your honor, your kingdom, uh, you know, your wealth, because you were thinking about being a good king a righteous king, and you didn't put yourself first, I'm not, I'm not only going to give you unparalleled wisdom, I'm going to throw in all the other stuff. I'm going to give you honor and riches. C.S. Lewis points out, seek second things, and you lose second things and first things. Seek first things, and you get second things thrown in. That's the principle. In life, we need to aim at the highest things, and when we aim at the highest things, the lower things get added. Solomon exhibits a kingly character by not being grasping, but not thinking in terms of money and his own honor and reputation. He's thinking about the righteous rule of God. God, give me wisdom so that your rule over your people would be established, so justice would be established in the land. And God proceeds to give give him what he asks for. But notice Solomon's priorities here. Notice why he asks for wisdom. Again, it's not just wisdom for wisdom's sake. It's wisdom so he can punish the wicked, chase the darkness, the wickedness out of his kingdom, and establish the righteous in peace and quiet. Wisdom for ruling. If God answers Solomon's prayer and bestows this kind of wisdom, essentially what you get is God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In a sense, this is a prayer for God's kingdom, his rule on earth to to advance. If Solomon is the kind of king, a wise king that God wants him to be, then he will rule justly. And as he rules justly, God's reign, his rule over his people will be realized in history. Solomon is prioritizing the kingdom above himself, the reign of God above his own interests. And that's the priority for God's people in every generation. It was the priority for Solomon, and it's the priority that should characterize believers today. Uh, Our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 6 teaches us this, 6, 31 and 32. Do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. 
But seek first the kingdom, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you as well. Note first the priority of the kingdom. First thing in life is not you, your desires, your wants, even your needs, interestingly, even something as simple as food. That doesn't come first. Jesus says your absolute allegiance, your deepest allegiance should be to the king and the kingdom, and God will take care of the rest. Seek first the kingdom, seek first things, and second things, the things that God knows you need in this life, he'll provide as well, but seek first the kingdom. What does that mean, seek the kingdom? Sounds a little bit abstract and nebulous, esoteric. Well, to seek the kingdom is to desire and pray for and work for the extension of Christ's rule. Christ is Lord over all, and to seek the kingdom of God is to seek for his rule, his kingly authority to go out further and further and deeper and deeper into the world to want everything that stands opposed to Christ to be conquered and all things to be brought into submission with his life-giving rule. As citizens of that kingdom, that should be our ardent desire, that the king would be glorified through the extension of his rule. At one level, what that means is, the way the kingdom advances in our lives personally is as we turn from sin and increasingly submit to the commands of Jesus Christ. As we turn from lust and greed and unrighteous anger and arrogance and mistreatment of others and excessive love of money, and we increasingly walk in faith and humility and self-control and love of Jesus above money, his rule is increasingly established in our lives as we grow in righteousness and holiness. So our growth in obedience to Christ, our, our growth in holiness is an extension of his rule. If we long for the rule of Jesus to be established, the first place we begin is with our own sin, by turning from, from it, praying against it, and seeking to grow. But to desire the kingdom also means that we want to see other people being brought in under the authority of King Jesus and growing in their submission to King Jesus. Look at the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. It's a passage many of you know well. Jesus resurrected Lord over all says this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Okay, that's a statement of kingship, absolute authority. I'm in charge. Okay, now recognizing that he has absolute authority, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Make followers. Why? Because I'm king. I have authority. To make disciples is to help them see my kingly authority, to submit to it and grow in their obedience. One way to describe disciple-making or helping other people follow Jesus is that we are seeking to extend his rule more and more into the world. When we share the gospel with someone, when we read the Bible with our kids, uh, when we seek to make Jesus known to an unbelieving coworker, uh, when we uh, strategize and think about how we can make Jesus look good at work through the way that we treat our coworkers, in all of those ways, we are seeking to advance the rule of Jesus Christ through our engagement with other people. To seek the kingdom, therefore, means uh, to desire, to work toward, to give money toward um, the the advancement of Christ's reign over the lives of others. And as we seek to help them know Jesus, grow, his rule advances. We seek the kingdom by praying for it. What does the Lord's prayer, uh, prayer say? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
your will be done, it explains what it means to pray for the kingdom. To pray for your kingdom come is to pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when we pray for that, we're praying that every sin in our hearts, as we've noted, would be overcome by God. We're praying that people would be converted. We're, we're praying that people would grow in grace. We're praying that marriages would be healed. We're praying that every aspect of life would be increasingly conformed to the will of King Jesus. Ultimately, we're going to be ambitious for ourselves or for the kingdom. This is how John Stott puts it. There are only two kinds of ambition. One can be, can be ambitious either for oneself or for God. What are you ambitious for? For the advancement of your kingdom, ease, pleasure, profit, professional success? Is that what's at the center of your life? Or are you ambitious for the king to see his cause advancing? So that hymn says, your glorious cause engages our hearts. Let Jesus Christ be known wherever we are. Is that your heartbeat? That Jesus would be known, that his reign would advance. How can you tell? Well, one indication is, what do you scheme and dream about? If you love money and you want to get more money, what do you naturally do? You plot, you scheme, you think. Uh, what investments could I undertake to make more? What jobs could I get to make more money? How can we save money to have more of it, right? You naturally scheme to get the things that your heart is invested in. If it's money, you plot to get more of it. But when your heart is invested in the kingdom, you scheme and dream for the advancement of that kingdom. When there's a new family, a new couple that moves into your neighborhood, you turn to your spouse and you say, hey, we have to have them over for dinner to build a relationship with them. Why? So one way or another, we can point them to Jesus. You think about how to leverage opportunities at work, not just to make more money, but also to make Jesus look good in the eyes of coworkers who may not know him. You think about how you can be more effective as a parent and, and reading scripture with your kids and helping them grow in their love of scripture. You're thinking in terms of people and you're thinking about how can my life make an impact in their life so that they can take one or two or three steps forward in their relationship with Jesus so that the kingdom can advance. Do you have those kinds of thoughts, those kinds of dreams, those kinds of desires? Are you on mission for the king? That's one indicator. Two, what are you praying for? If all of your prayers over the course of the last week or two were answered. David, I think you asked us that question. Uh, if all your prayers over the course of the last week or two were answered, how many people would be saved? How many people would grow in their relationship with Jesus? Uh, what would be the result of, of uh, your prayers over the last two weeks? When there is a commitment to the kingdom, we're going to be thinking in terms of other people, in terms of conversion, spiritual growth, and so on. We're going to be petitioning God for those things. Where self is center, it's all about, Lord, help me at this, help me with that, give me this. Those are not bad prayers. We need things from the Lord. But the kingdom comes first. What are you living for? For yourself or for King Jesus? So notice then, Solomon's request is indeed for wisdom, but it's wisdom to be an effective tool for the advancement of the kingdom. And similarly, we should be praying for wisdom that we might be effective agents for the advance of God's kingdom. So when you go to talk to someone, share Jesus with them, pray for wisdom. Pray that God would give you wisdom so that his rule would extend as you share the gospel or you teach a new believer to pray or whatever. Pray for wisdom to be effective in kingdom initiatives. That's what we see Solomon doing. Wisdom in service to the kingdom. That's the priority. Kingdom comes over self. 
Now, Solomon has asked of the Lord that which is pleasing to the Lord, and the Lord grants him his petition. We move from the bedroom, the chamber, to the courtroom. The king is on the throne, and he's faced with a particularly difficult case. Here we see how God answers Solomon's prayer. Uh, There are two women. There's a plaintiff and a defendant, and uh, both prostitutes. Both had uh, sons at roughly the same time. And the plaintiff, the one leveling the accusation, says, "Uh, here's what happened. I had a child. Three days later, she had a child. But she rolled over on her child. Her child died. But then when she noticed that, in the middle of the night, she took her son, who's now dead, put him next to me and took my son next to her. And in the morning when I woke up, I thought my child had died. But in fact, upon closer scrutiny, it was actually her son. She took my child. I want it back. The defendant responds, no, no, no. This is my child. You're mistaken. Your child is dead. And here's the problem. There are no witnesses. Just one woman's word against another. If you have kids, you know exactly what this moral dilemma is like. He hit me. No, I didn't. There are no witnesses. You know what I'm talking about. Where do, we, where do you go to assess this? Who's in the right? Who's in the wrong? You're both in trouble. I mean, there's no, it's a, it's a hard case. You've probably experienced it to a degree. But put yourself in Solomon's position. Now, we know, part of the problem is we know how the story ends. We know how elegantly he resolves this issue. But put yourself in his shoes. Two women, no witnesses, contradictory claims. How can you figure out what the truth is? What do you do? To admit, most of us would be clueless. Here's what Solomon does. He says, hey, get a sword. It's intriguing. He doesn't tell anybody why he's, he said this. Must have shocked everyone. Why is he getting a sword? Yeah, bring, bring a sword. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to slice the baby in half, and we're going to give each woman half. At that moment, each woman's heart is exposed. The mother says, no, 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 she can have the boy. What matters is that he be kept alive. And the envy in the other woman is exposed as well. No, kill the baby. She doesn't want a son. She doesn't want the other woman to have a son. Kill the baby. None of us will have him. Solomon says, well, hold on. Their hearts have been exposed. That's the real mom. That's the imposter. That's what wisdom knows how to do. The heart of man is a deep, deep well, but wisdom knows how to draw it out. And Solomon demonstrates a godlike wisdom, a divine wisdom, by being able to expose the secret intentions of the heart. And the result of this judgment, verse 28, is that all Israel heard the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood amazed. They stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. Israel recognizes they have no ordinary king. This is a king you can trust and count on. This is a king who's going to steer the ship in the right direction. This is a sure-footed guide. He has the wisdom of God, and the kingdom will prosper in his hand because he is wise. Wouldn't it be wonderful to have a king like that? Wouldn't it be wonderful to have a king whose every decision is impeccable, who always leads you in the right direction, and his judgments are unfailing. Well, according to Scripture, Solomon is an anticipation of that greater king. There is a king who's even wiser. And Isaiah the prophet speaks of the coming of this king, Isaiah 11, 2 through 4. 
and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. A king drenched in God's wisdom is coming. And all of his judgments will be pure and right and he will not be deceived by mere appearances. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 12 verse 42, Jesus says, The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And that something greater is King Jesus, who puts Solomon's wisdom in the shade. The gospel writers show us that when uh, his enemies try to outfox him through all, all, all sorts of traps that they set up for him, he consistently outmaneuvers them and silences them. All of his ways, all of his speech, all of his desires and thoughts are in perfect harmony with the divine wisdom. Jesus is not only Lord of all, supreme king, he is not only faithful to his people, but he is unfailingly wise in everything that he brings to pass. Do you believe that Jesus always aims at what is best and it aims at it in the best possible way? And do you believe that that's true not only in general, but in the particularities of your life? Do you believe that Jesus is perfectly wise in absolutely everything he permits to come into your life? that he is acting towards the best ends and in the best possible way? Do you believe that his wisdom is manifest even in those trials, those, those moments where you throw up your hands and say, Lord, I don't know what you're doing here. I have no idea how this fits in with anything. Do you believe even in those moments our king is acting wisely and faithfully? The confidence that Israel had when they saw the judgment of Solomon, they said, that's a king we can get behind. There's a king we can trust. That same confidence should characterize the people of God today, should characterize you. We have a king who always does what is right and just and good. You can count on him. Psalm 139 says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were written for me, when as yet there was none of them. David here describes God writing in a book the story of our life. He's the author, we're the character. And every day is in his book. Do you believe that that's the best possible story you can be in? That there's no better story than the one that Jesus has put you in? If you could, take a, a pencil with an eraser and erase what Jesus has written. And if you could write your own story, would you want to? Or do you delight in all the twists and turns that he, as your king, has decreed, knowing that his wisdom is best and his wisdom is highest? The invitation of 1 Kings 3 to us is God has indeed given, given us a king that's even better and wiser than Solomon, and so we can have absolute confidence in this king. He knows where he's taking us. It's good. He knows the best way there. And our call is to trust in that king. You know you're doing that when, you don't, when you're not overwhelmed by frustration when things don't go your way in life. When you don't grumble and complain every time your plans get thrown off. 
calmness, contentment, that's a sign that you trust the king to make the best decisions for you. And so you're not readily perturbed when life doesn't take the, the shape that you want it. Contentment, peace, a readiness to submit even to adversity is a sign that you are trusting the king's decisions and judgments. A response to this passage should be one of gratitude to God for raising up this kind of king, for putting our lives in his hands. Our king will never fail us. He will take us through the best paths until we reach home safely. Praise be to God for the king that he has given us, a wise king, king wiser than even Solomon. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge that life in your kingdom is good. We confess that your ways are higher than our ways, but they are best. Lord Jesus, we pray for the faith to trust you even when we don't understand, and often we don't understand. But help us to have a confidence that you always know what you're doing. And let us live in the peace of that confidence, we pray. Amen.